a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow And tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. Happy to be here. Happy to be with everyone in the new year. It's been a while since we've been with everyone, so excited to be back. Yeah, it has been a while, and I'm very excited. We've got a whole new year. In fact, it's already February, which is crazy to me that wasn't supposed to happen uh it's february of 2022 (laughs) how'd that happen i don't know um uh it's i mean we're living in the future man and uh what better topic for a new year uh, for a new uh another step into the future than tomorrowland really that's right you know we are we don't usually go right when we get to the park but it took us a while to get around to Tomorrowland for this 50th anniversary special. Yeah, befitting Disney history. It took us a while <laughs> yes, to get to Tomorrowland. That's true. That's true. Uh, as with every other Disney park ever built, Agreed. it uh, took a while to get to Tomorrowland. But uh, yeah, we're here. We've, uh, you know, we're still celebrating Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. It's still going on. Uh, and as a segue, from discussing the Magic Kingdom, which is mostly what we discussed last year, to discussing some other things we're going to discuss this year, this year, of course, being the 40th anniversary of Epcot Center. Uh, Tomorrowland's a nice little bridge to move from one to the other. Two worlds, one family, if you think about it. It's true. It's true. Uh, The same spirit that fueled Walt's Tomorrowland now fueled uh, Epcot Center. So... Yeah, what are what are we going to talk about today? We've got all Disney history has all sorts of Tomorrowlandy things to pick from. That's right, and it's some of our favorite, you know, themes, uh, you know, of, of Disney stuff. It's Tomorrowlandy stuff. So we're going to start off with Walt's TV show, the Disneyland TV show, and uh, as we've said, everybody had a hard time getting around to Tomorrowland. So did this show, but once they got around to it, they really did it in style. We're going to talk about some of the early Tomorrowland TV shows on the Disney anthology series. I love, like, I can watch those and have watched those just over and over again. The vibe is impeccable. You get that Paul Freeze going. Oh, yeah. It's good stuff. Science factual, Michael. It's true. Yeah. Uh, Then we're going to look at somebody who is known and you would recognize their name, but you may not know how influential they were on Walt Disney world and Disney Walt Disney himself. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about Welton Beckett and his career, an architect of renown who uh, would go on to design some of your favorite places in Disney world. 
yeah, this guy, this guy had a long career and touched a lot of things uh, you know, but you may not know had anything to do with him. Yeah. And a man who looked to the future himself, just like Absolutely. Walt, a, a contemporary of Walt's he was. Uh, then we're going to check out Tomorrowland at the Magic Kingdom. There's not much there, but we're going to see what was there and uh, a little bit of what was planned and, and maybe some of what you could hear when you were there back yeah. in 1971. Yeah, this, I mean, this is, the kids are flocking to Tomorrowland. We got to <laughs> see, we got to see what the big draw is there. That's right. And we're going to end off, uh, like Michael said, transitioning over to Epcot. We're going to look at one of the earliest plans for what would become Epcot Center, the Future World Theme Center. What a name, Michael. Yeah, yeah. When uh, they were just kind of tossing around names back in the 70s, and they had these words that they really liked, and eventually they just kind of put them all together to the Epcot Future World Theme Center. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm just tagging them all together. You got to love a good theme center, you know. Mm-hmm. Just keep it, keep it themed and central. Uh, but a lot of a lot of good stuff coming up. But as always, we should check in with Walt. Here to introduce you to this new series is Walt Disney. In our modern world, everywhere we look, we see the influence science has upon our daily lives. Discoveries that were miracles a few short years ago are accepted as commonplace today. Many of the things that seem impossible now will become realities tomorrow. One of a man's oldest dreams has been the desire for space travel, to travel to other worlds. Until recently, this seemed to be an impossibility, but great new discoveries have brought us to the threshold of a new frontier, the frontier of interplanetary space. In this Tomorrowland series, we are combining the tools of our trade with the knowledge of the scientists to give a factual picture of the latest plans for man's newest adventure. When Walt debuted his Disneyland television program in 1954, viewers were promised that each week they would pay a visit to one of the park's cardinal realms. But it wasn't until March 9th, 1955, that the program would welcome its first audience to Tomorrowland via a science factual presentation entitled Man in Space. This was to be the first of three space-focused Tomorrowland episodes to be directed by Disney legend Ward Kimball, and their influence would be felt not only in living rooms nationwide, but also in the halls of power in Washington, D.C., At the start, Walt had as difficult a problem figuring out what to feature on his Tomorrowland show as Imagineers would have coming up with a concrete vision for Tomorrowland in the theme parks later on. No Disney production at that point had focused on anything involving technology or the future. The closest thing to science fiction that the studio had produced was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but that was, of course, a fantastical tale set in the 19th century. For help, Walt consulted Ward Kimball. Ward was an iconoclastic animator who had been at the studio since the 1930s, and he kind of liked to color outside of the lines. As Ward told Dave Smith in the 1970s, Walt came to me and said, you guys are the modern thinkers around here, probably using that term in a snide way. Can you think of anything we can do on Tomorrowland? (laughs) Yeah, he was certainly a modern thinker. 
Modern, you guys are modern thinkers. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea of Ward being like, fine, whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, luckily for Walt, Ward had been reading a popular series of articles about space exploration in Collier's magazine. Said Ward, it was fascinating for me to realize that there were these reputable scientists who actually believed that we were going out in space. Uh, this series of Collier's articles called Man Will Conquer Space Soon! Exclamation <laughs> point. Uh, these were heavily influential. They were in-depth and written by prominent space experts such as Werner von Braun, Willie Ley, and Heinz Haber. And their illustrations from artists such as Chesley Bonestell have turned out to be really iconic representations of early space travel concepts. These, I feel like even when we were growing up, these images were all over the place. Oh, absolutely. You think about that uh, space station, the circular space station with the, uh, I mean, all those ones that you would see, uh, the kind of proto-space shuttle. Uh, also, golden age of, of magazines. Just uh, yes. pick up a cob copy of Collier's and uh, check out the future of space travel. I know, like a multi-part, multi-year series, like Glorious. written by these expert guys and illustrated by these master illustrators. Yeah, golden age for sure. But like you said, they, they were very influential, as we will see in regards to this. But just, I mean, this was a big deal uh, to helping people conceive of what was going to happen uh, in a real practical way for the American public. Yeah. And I, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but the public, it's really amazing to look back and see how much the public and the press were highly skeptical that space travel was going to, like we think of this era as like the rocket age and the right. space age, but like in the fifties before things really kicked off, People were really doubting that anything was going to happen, and the government didn't really want to invest in it too much. Yeah, and then, you know, when Sputnik happens, people get scared of it more yeah. than anything. So it's like, you think of it in a, a military application more than anything else. So this was really helpful in kind of bringing about the space age as we know it now. Yeah. I mean, as as unfortunate as the Cold War was, it the, one of the benefits was, like, we probably wouldn't have gone into space as soon no. as we did if no. we hadn't have been kicked in the pants by them doing it first. Right. right. And us being in a panic to keep up. And then that sort of started things rolling. So it's unfortunate that that's what it took to get the government interested. But uh, yeah, so we'll, yeah, we'll definitely get to that because it does play a role. Um, so uh, Ward Kimball and Ken O'Connor, who was uh, one of his layout guys, they started working on this project by revisiting the articles in Collier's and speaking to Charles Shows, who at the time was doing a program about space on KTLA. That's something I would like to see. Yeah. I bet that would be good. Shows started working with Disney on story treatments. But he had issues adapting to the storyboarding approach, which they used for you know putting these stories together. So Bill Bachet, who was a sketch artist and a writer at Disney, was brought onto the team to help. Uh, they all together put together an outline for the program and presented it to Walt in 1954. In these meetings, Walt and Ward agreed that combining scientific fact with comedic entertainment was the key to cracking the script for the shows and ensuring that there would be something there for the entire family. The facts are fascinating, but if you lighten it up with cartoons or something, said Ward, 
It would make a complete family deal. Still, he knew the interest that kids had in science. The kids really accept this stuff on space, he said. They really believe it. So he believed in the kids. <laughs> he knew the kids were into it. Uh, Walt agreed that both sides of the coin were necessary. He said, uh, you need a good balance to keep it from becoming too dry and corny. We don't want to compete with Sid Caesar or do that type of thing. We want to do something new on our show. Burn. We don't want that Sid Caesar space nonsense. <laughs> I don't know what Sid Caesar was doing on this topic at the time. but uh, Yeah, Walt, Walt knew uh, where a lot of the laughs could come from, uh, which was a man's own past follies. He said, we are trying to show man's dreams of the future and what he has learned from the past. The history might be a good way to work in a lot of your laughs. People laugh at inventions of the past, such as the guy trying to fly with feathers. Because with the inventions and the progress of science today, people feel superior. Man is always trying to invent something so that he doesn't have to work so hard. He is the human animal. I think that is your basis. Spoken like Jiminy Cricket, the human animal. The human animal. Maybe that's where it came from. God, I wouldn't be surprised. And Walt coined the term. I'll point out that this approach is not only the one that uh, Walt's people would wind up taking in many of these Disneyland episodes that were based on sort of factual things, but it also underlied a lot of the epic attractions built for Epcot Center, and that was 25 years later. Oh, absolutely. This is the playbook. You know, I think of these classic specials that uh, that teach so much, and uh, but they, they always include a wacky look at the past. But you look at things, you know, I remember all these little stock footage things they would use, or but they those also educate, you know, like they educate through humor. But I learned so much about aviation history and all this stuff through through this stuff. And we'll think about the gags every time I think about the events, you know, that I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the guy with the wings, they look right, heavy, right. but they are light. <laughs> that guy. That guy. And, it, of course, a train running into a barn obviously yeah, no, needed right. to happen at some point. But, yeah, this is like the template that I always – and, like, it's just so ingrained that anytime I think of telling a story like this – you got to start off with the wacky historical like side of it first. That's right. That's, That's just, right. It's just, it's perfect for it. And um, I mean, they did this even, I think the world's fair episode of uh, the wonderful yes. world. Of Color. Oh yeah. I mean, start off with a wacky bum, cartoon. Bum, look bum, at bum, bum, bum. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> with a uh, wacky clip art. So this is yeah. something that they did and then it carried on. And uh, it's like what made those Epcot shows so memorable too. That's right. Even in these early meetings, a lot of the ideas that were found in the later Tomorrowland shows popped up. Ward, for instance, proposed a cartoon about Mars and its inhabitants. But Walt insisted that the scientific material had to be presented accurately. He said, we should be too careful and keep our serious stuff separate. We have to watch it so the material doesn't get corny. I think this parallels the true life adventures, facts, and opening up this world to the people. And that's what it's all about, man. Okay, well said. At this point, Walt and his Imagineers were already planning a flight to the moon attraction for Disneyland. And Walt thought the tone of this show should match that, a, a real attempt to depict a realistic experience. By the end of the first meeting, the show had been given the working title of Rockets in Space. And Walt seemed really into it. As Bill Boucher later remembered, Walt was enthusiastic. He walked out of the story room, stopped at the desk, and ripped off a blank sheet of newt paper. 
He handed it to Kimball and said, write your own ticket. I remember Harry Title was standing there when Walt said that, and his eyes just about dropped out of his head. Walt never said anything like that. <laughs> I trust in Ward Kimball, man. That's right. Uh, to get things rolling, Ward and his people contacted a number of real-life space experts, but a lot of American space scientists balked at the idea. They were kind of burned out after a number of failed attempts to interest people in a space program. One such response read, quote, I am a retired old scientist, having found through 30 years of strenuous research the stuff that most people of our days can very well get along without. I say this with the knowledge that insofar as today's scientists are concerned, the fruits of my labor could very well lay dormant for another century. However, it is possible that I may be wrong. I must say that your firm seems always to have been foremost in expounding new views and perhaps in this case, Mr. Walt Disney will outdistance our ordinary scientists and possibly shorten the aforementioned century. Wow. So that uh, very verbose, uh, yes. cranky old scientist, right. um, you know, th there was just like these guys just didn't think it was going to happen. Well, you can see why. I mean, the, 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 it was close, but yet so far away, the development they had to do took place like you said it's the cold war um they had to pour a lot of money and a lot of resources at it to get it up to speed so i imagine you know a lot of people thought that the moon landing was going to happen uh at the end of the century yeah. right at this yeah. time um, yeah and they really did leapfrog to get there for sure had all that money, money, money. Uh, yeah. As part of his efforts uh, to get this to get this going, Ward contacted the scientists who had written in Colliers. Uh, first, he reached out to Willie Lay, who had immigrated to the United States from Germany before the war and had become a space expert. Uh, Lay made his way to the studio really quickly and kicked off a series of meetings with Kimball, Bachet, and their staff. Apparently, everyone at the studio got a kick out of Lay and his professorial ways. He insisted the kind of space missions they were discussing could be done immediately with existing technology. He said all that was lacking was the funding and motivation. Hmm. So this, you know, a lot of people thought, well, we're a long way away of developing the tech required. But he's like, no, we can do it now. We just have to pay for it. All of the work that they were doing at this time led up to another big storyboard presentation of Walt which point it was proposed to divide rockets and in space into two shows. The way Walt saw it, they would essentially be making a feature film and splitting it in half for TV. Then the two parts could be combined for a theatrical release overseas. Later, it was determined there was enough material for three shows. So it just kind of kept growing. Two more experts were brought on to contribute to the project, Werner von Braun and Heinz Haber. Both of these had been brought to America from Germany after the war as part of Operation Paperclip. Von Braun was now head of the Army's Guided Missile Development Division, and Haber was a research scientist at the U.S. Air Force School of Aviation. The space hardware depicted in the shows was heavily influenced by the Collier's artwork, including Von Braun's design for a four-stage launch vehicle and an orbital space station. Waithel Rogers was put to work building the scale models to be used for shooting, while Harry Title was sent to dig through film archives for footage of rocket development for the history segment of the show. <laughs> now, this is what, what we were talking about, these, these things that you see over and over again. 
apparently he, he had a problem. Uh, they had plenty of German footage because the Germans filmed everything. And then the army got all that footage when they beat the Nazis and, you know, just, you know, took it all. But stuff like earlier stuff, like Robert Goddard and stuff, they couldn't really find much yeah, rocket development. Right. So they had plenty of German stuff, though. Uh, von Braun himself was really eager to join the project. Uh, he had been trying to push these ideas for a long time, trying to get a space program going. He was ignored by the public and the Pentagon, which drove him crazy. He knew that the lure of Disney combined with the power of television could really put him over. He was a big time showman and a promoter. And oh, yeah. you see this throughout his interactions with Disney. Um, and he was willing to err on the side of fantasy a little bit if it helped create a more striking uh, story that he thought would like snag more people. I mean, he was very fact based, of course, but he wasn't quite as, uh, he was willing to stray a little further in the interest of showmanship. So I would imagine he and Walt probably got along pretty well on that point. Uh, he made a number of visits to the Disney lot. He made key technical suggestions about the show's storyline. And he would come, he would work well into the night with Kimball's team. He was a consultant or, well, I assume as part of his government work, uh, the Douglas plant was nearby. He would go there during the day, then come in the evening to Disney, and they would work like late, late at night working on this stuff. Eventually, it was decided that all three German experts would be included in the show to add authenticity. Uh, there was some discussion, though, over whether their heavy accents would be an impediment because they did have very heavy accents, but they decided to go ahead with it anyway. At last, the outline for the three shows was taking shape. The first episode, Man in Space, would start with a history of rocketry, followed by a segment on space medicine, and then the construction and launch of a spaceship. For the space medicine part, it was Walt himself that suggested the idea of a human cartoon character who would be the comedic guinea pig to depict the effects of space travel. I'm sure this was cracking him up this second. Yes. Right. <laughs> Homo sapiens extraterralis, they call that it. makes sense. Yeah, torturing the little cartoon guy. As a highlight of the show, Von Braun showed off his concept for a four-stage rocket, which kind of combined a sort of massive Saturn V-type rocket with a space shuttle-like orbiter vehicle on top. It was kind of a combo. It was designed to carry 10 people into space. As Von Braun said in the show, quote, If we were to start today on an organized and well-supported space program, I believe a practical passenger rocket can be built and tested within 10 years. So they, they actually beat that. Right. Uh, not quite to his scale, but they still made it. Uh, the dramatized launch of such a vehicle was then shown to cap off the program. In animated form. A Man in Space was a success upon its airing, and it received really good reviews. Even old Ike himself approved, calling Walt personally to ask for a copy of Man in Space, which he sent to the Pentagon for the brass to review. Whether coincidence or not, a month after the show aired in reruns that June, Eisenhower made the announcement that America had approved plans for launching satellites into orbit. Based on the public interest drummed up by the announcement, a second re-airing of the show was held in September. Uh, there's a funny like exchange between Ward and between Werner Braun Braun around this time because Ward's like, oh, we're rerunning the show and we're going to do a big like hoopla thing about how our show helped 
make this happen. And Warner Rumbaugh's like, please don't do that. It's like, there have been a lot of scientists working very hard on this, and they will think I'm trying to take all the credit for this. And right. it will make me very unpopular. So please, <laughs> please do not do that. Savvy man. Yeah, he was, he was a, he was a mover and shaker. He knew how to do it. The second show, which was called Man and the Moon, began with another trip into history for a humorous animated history of man's relationship with the moon. Uh, this one's really wacky. Mm -hmm. really, really wacky. To depict a modern moon voyage, it was decided to use live action instead of animation to achieve a greater level of realism. A spaceship set was constructed on studio sound stages and the nearby Douglas Company. Uh, it lit uh, aircraft seats as well as prototype space helmets for the shooting. Von Braun himself designed the spacesuits that were shown. The program was first aired at the Disney Studio for the American Rocket Society as they were having a convention in L.A. at the time. Uh, this, uh, this live action stuff really makes me wish... Walt had done like a real sci-fi movie. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's very evocative, very moody and uh, very interesting. Uh, Mars and beyond, which was going to be the third Tomorrowland program was originally targeted for a 1956 release to coincide with Mars's closest orbital approach to earth in a, huh. in a long time. Uh, due to a number of factors, though, it didn't actually hit the air until 1957. In the interim, the government had decided to go forward with the Project Vanguard satellite program, which was chosen over Von Braun's Redstone project. The media was also really doubting the possibility of a space program. As we said, a contemporary article in Parade Magazine at the time predicted that man wouldn't make it into orbit until 1980. And uh, others were even more pessimistic, like we talked about. Mars and Beyond got bumped in the production schedule when IBM and the National Academy of Sciences approached Disney and uh, the Kimball team to make a film about Project Vanguard. But this, too, ran into difficulty when real-world events intervened. In October 1957, the USSR launched Sputnik, and this shocked the Western world. As a result, the Project Vanguard film was sadly canceled. That would have been a cool one. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. Sadly, it got sacked. Uh, Von Braun was back in the spotlight as his team was instructed to launch a satellite. And in uh, November 1957, he promised to do so within 90 days. Thankfully, he had already completed his story meetings and host segment shoots at Disney, as he was now a heavily in-demand uh, media figure. He recommended one of his colleagues, Dr. Ernst Stuhlinger, to join the Disney team to design the Mars-bound spacecraft for the next show, uh, which would have been a uh, nuclear-powered uh, electric-propelled ship, which uh, was also pretty ahead of its time. For me, the most memorable part of Mars and Beyond is the part that shows visions of what life on Mars could be like. Mm -hmm. uh, while the team behind the show realized that complex life on Mars was almost definitely a fantasy at this point. This segment was included for entertainment value. Kimball sent out a questionnaire to members of the studio's animation training program, asking them to submit concepts for what a Martian would look like. As Walt would ask Kimball when the show was first screened on the Disney lot, how do you guys think up all that crazy stuff? <laughs> uh, Jeff, this segment with its Paul Freese narration is uh, truly iconic. Oh yeah. And I mean, 
I I side with Walt. Some of that stuff is so creative and bizarre. Uh, truly, truly creative stuff. And yeah, I think about this would uh, make its way onto the Disney Channel when we were kids. We would yes. see this one uh, in good rotation. Just this little segment, I feel like, was uh, its own thing that I remember. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, wild. this is something that got reused a lot. I'm just all the like the little flying frisbee thing that would focus light to kill, like kill yeah. things and. Like the weird plants and all the one of that's stuff like eating great. itself. Yes, and the yeah. music was great too. The music and the sound effects were really great. Yeah, because they do two different. Th- they do the one that's like wacky, and then they do the one that's very serious with Paul Freese. But like the wacky one where where they talk about the um, like the uh, John Car- the things from John Carter of Mars and those characters, and then they tell the story of the scientist the the scientist smoking his pipe with equations yes. coming out. Yes, and then that robot, that awesome black robot, yeah, takes and, the uh, woman away. Yeah, on the uh, and then she turns into a superhero, and there's that parade of like crazy creatures that ends with Donald Duck, like. Rah, 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 rah. Just an IP sitting out there waiting to be used, you know, the black robot and the oh, lady Can you imagine robot. if instead of, this is, you know, a long time ago I was brainstorming. I mean, it was like backseat imagineering. Like, what could you put into Marlin that would be cool? Instead of Buzz Lightyear, you had a ride that started off. You went through the, like, offices, like, 60-style offices, and that guy with his pipe would be in an office. <laughs> Like smoking his pipe with the equations coming out, and then the ride is just all these creatures from uh, yeah. from this thing, and like the final, <laughs> the, the, like that final scene is the UFO with the robot running along the outside. Right, the right. Oh, so it's so good. There's so much in this one episode. We should also mention this is the episode that begins with Walt talking to Garco. Talk about iconic. I mean, Garco doesn't get much better than that. Garko, who has made many appearances, Garko is, and a lot of stuff from this show is at the uh, Sci-Fi Diner and uh-huh. MGM. Uh, but Garko also featured as President Garko in the old Space Mountain pre-show. That's right, President Garko. <laughs> I always refer to him as President Garko because <laughs> President Garko said today. You got to wonder uh, if uh, Eddie Sato is. Uh, partially responsible for president garco somebody with deep knowledge <laughs> exactly yeah that was a deep cut for them to go to smtv and eddie soto teamed up with mario lopez on that one right. and uh, and uh, charlie cool. uh, charlie fleischer charlie fleischer yeah <laughs> oh man such far out ideas really fit well into this show uh, it this one was more science fiction than the first two tomorrowland episodes and it's kind of fitting, I guess, the episode ended with the appearance of a flying saucer. From the beginning of the project, people like Willie Lay and Heinz Haber had fought to keep out any mention of UFOs. But Kimball saved it for the finale of the most fantastical episode. So it's kind of like, what will happen tomorrow? Who knows? And due to its timely nature, Mars and Beyond actually had press screenings before its broadcast. And the reviews were glowing. It aired on December 4th, 1957, which was two days before the first Project Vanguard rocket blew up on the launch pad. Oops. A month later, Von Braun's team, uh, they actually succeeded. They put Explorer 1 into orbit. 
And uh, it, this was only the beginning of the American space adventure and uh, really the space race kicking into gear. As Von Braun would say when he called Kimball the day that Apollo 8 circled the moon for the first time, well, Ward, it looks like they're following our script. <laughs> the shows had been a great success despite their costs. The three shows together cost a million dollars total, which was more than the three Davy Crockett episodes cost. Oh, wow. As Kimball later explained to Dave Smith, the crazy thing about these shows was that we had relatively little input from Walt. Because he was so busy with Disneyland, we got away with things I am sure that if he had been writing Hurt on it as much as some of the other projects that came before or after, we probably wouldn't have been able to get some of those things in the pictures. There were things you couldn't explain to Walt. There were things that he saw later that he just thought were wonderful, but we all agreed that had we put them on the storyboard and tried to sell them, he'd have kicked them out. But once they were done, he could see it. There were a lot of things in those shows that you couldn't explain with a storyboard treatment, so we were fortunate in that respect. Even though he okayed the final story treatments, he went with our judgment for the details. Uh, these shows lived on in other formats. Uh, Man in Space was edited into a featurette, which played in theaters before Davy Crockett and the River Pirates. Talk about that, that'd be a double bill, man. Yeah. It also received a comic adaptation, uh, sort of a novelization in comic format. Heinz Haber took leave from his university to help Disney with other Tomorrowland presentations, including Man in Flight, Donald in Mathmagic Land, and Our Friend the Atom, which is a good one. Uh, elements of some of these programs were mashed up to create a later episode of Wonderful World of Color called Fly with Von Drake, uh, which is where we saw a lot of this for the first time. Absolutely. That was a favorite as kids. That uh, is really a great one. I mean, it's yeah. a lot of material from these shows, but it, replacing uh, the German hosts with Ludwig Von Drake, who actually sounds a lot like them, as right. a matter of fact. Right. I th got to think Paul Freese, like based a lot of this on a uh, Von Drake on like Heinz Haber because he yes. sounds a lot like Yes, yeah. I can see that. Uh, like I said before, it kills me. Even with the success of these programs, Walt never did any really hard science fiction in the future, which strikes me as a missed opportunity. I would have loved to have seen other movies and projects with this aesthetic. Well, yeah, and, and mentioning – you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is the only evidence of their feature stuff. It was so good in its design and uh, scope, you would think. that the, And then you see what they do in the theme parks. You think uh, some sci-fi would be really cool design and production. Would have been really neat. These, I mean, it, it's wild how close they got uh, with Man in Space to what actually happened. I mean, it really did follow the script. And I mean, having Von Braun on board was a big help, but you hardly ever see people like talking that far into the future and getting it right. Note for note. Yeah. I mean, usually stuff is so fantastical and out there. And I mean, it was on a scale probably, I mean, it was there. The fact that the differences were so slight, I mean, the concepts as that they're talking about, you know, on that episode, he's talking about his multi-stage rocket it's like, yeah, that's pretty much how they did it. Uh, it's It wound up being maybe not as pretty as the artistic representations, but the concepts are sure. It's right there. That's right, right. It's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, who knows this, you know, doing the research for this got me thinking about what Walt's reaction to the moon landing would have been. And, uh, you know, you really hate he didn't have those extra years 
you know, only three more years, the moon landing took place after he passed. And, uh, you know, who knows what kind of projects that might have inspired. That's right. Mission completed. Man has taken his first great stride forward in the conquest of space. His next goal will be the exploration of the moon, then the planets, and the infinite universe beyond. And now, let's take a ride on the People Mover. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, Walt Disney would become absorbed in his pursuits of designing themed spaces in Disneyland, which would eventually blossom into his interest in full-scale urban design. During this time, he would befriend and consult with architects and designers that had influence beyond his studio. Certainly one of the most influential of these would be Welton Beckett, who would become a close confidant of Disney's through these years. Beckett was born one year after Walt on August 8, 1902 in Seattle, Washington. There he would go on to attend the University of Washington and make a name for himself on the gridiron, going on to play in a Rose Bowl and entertain an offer from the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> Beckett would turn that down and instead decide to attend L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. He said he was too small to play football. That's pretty wild, though. I <laughs> yes. Go of Welton Beckett, architect in the Rose Bowl. That's crazy. That's right. After returning from Paris, Beckett would go into business with his best friend, Walter Wordman, in 1930. Their first commission, Michael, was a doghouse for a Great Dane. <laughs> Picturing as, like, brutalist doghouse. This is a yes, massive, futuristic right. doghouse. That'd be great. Uh, luckily, this led them to building the dog owner's house, and by 1933, the firm was opening an office in Los Angeles. One of their first jobs was to redesign Clifton's Cafeteria, a beloved L.A. establishment. And in the height of the Depression, they took their pay in Clifton's meals. Michael, would that be worth it? That would, uh, man, I'd, I'd sign up for that. I'd, I'd have that as a writer in my contract. That works for That's me. Right. That's right. Love it's, Clifton's. Yeah, I can't wait to go someday. But Beckett's first big break would come in a design competition with 19 other firms to build the Pan Pacific Auditorium, built in 1935. This convention center would be an important facility for years in Los Angeles, hosting all sorts of events as the only such facility in the area. Its facade was one of the finest examples of streamlined modern architecture, with four towers that evoked aircraft fins. Unfortunately, the original auditorium would be destroyed by a fire in 1989, but Disney fans will recognize it as being commemorated as the entrance to both Disney's Hollywood Studios and the California Adventure Park. That fire would incidentally occur the same month that the Disney MGM Studios opened. That 
you know, I, I mean, I knew it had burned, but I did not realize it had survived that long and had that coincidental timing. That's really strange. It had been put on the National Register of Historic Places in 78, but it seemed like it was like in terrible repair. And yeah, LA is bad about that, for sure. Yeah. If only they could have saved that facade, you know? Yes, absolutely. It was a beautiful building. Beckett and Wordman would go on to design homes for the likes of Robert Montgomery, Cesar Romero, and James Cagney, and lots of other housing through the 1940s. In 1947, the firm would take on a groundbreaking project in Bullock's department store of Pasadena. This project would move Beckett into the world of commercial development and be a groundbreaking study in the new suburban shopping center, gaining acclaim for its revolutionary design by Beckett's team and landscape architect, Ruth Shellhorn. Uh-huh. Okay. That's right. Uh, it would also be the debut of Beckett's so-called total design philosophy, which created harmony in building design, landscaping, signage, and interior design. Bullock's had a much more open floor plan and harmony within departments than other department stores of the day, as well as innovations such as a package delivery conveyor system that would deliver packages to waiting customers in the parking lot, which is pretty cool. Uh, Luckily, this building still exists and is also preserved on the National Register of Historic Places, with many of its elements, including some of Ruth Shellhorn's landscape design, still present today. Uh, This development brought a wave of business and acclaim for Beckett and Wordman. So, the burbs. I I love old department store infrastructure. Yeah. Like, little pneumatic pipes and conveyor belts and, you know, this and that. Love it. Absolutely. Think of Holiday Affair and all the uh, little stuff in that. Concurrent with the Bullock's design, Beckett and Wordman helped design the post-war house that opened in Los Angeles in 1946. This house was commissioned by developer Fritz Burns and included revolutionary home design and furnishings such as garbage disposals, electronic toothbrushes, UV surface cleaning, home control panels with controls for the entire property, and of course all manner of electronic and kitchen gadgets. The air was cleaned by Westinghouse's Precipitron system. (laughs) Interiors were provided by Bullock's. In 1951, the house would be rebranded as the House of Tomorrow and entertain millions through its time with proceeds going to charity. So that sounds a little familiar. Yeah, little uh, little tease there of things uh-huh. to come. Unfortunately, in 1949, Beckett's partner, Walter Wordman, would pass away. Though his loss would certainly be immense to Beckett, his fortunes were better than ever. He lived in the Holmby Hills neighborhood in Los Angeles, would have a neighbor and friend in Walt Disney. By the time Walt was designing initial plans for the Disneyland Park, still in Burbank on the Riverside Drive lot, he had decided to work with the firm of Pereira and Luckman, themselves no slouches, having recently designed the CBS Television City development. It was Luckman who introduced Walt to Buzz Price and started a partnership with the Stanford Research Institute that would last for years. Uh, Also, C.B. Wood was the head of the Stanford Research Institute. Okay. But the two parties came to some difficulties, and Walt again asked Beckett for advice. Beckett encouraged Walt to have movie set directors and studio workers design the park, which would lay the template for the success of Disneyland and Wed Enterprises. Walt would come back to Beckett closer to the opening of Disneyland to ask for more advice. Jack and Bill Evans had been tabbed as landscape architects, 
and with various web designers being art directors for various lands, Walt was concerned about the layout of the park and the landscape design providing harmony between the lands. Beckett recommended Ruth Shellhorn from his partnership in her and many Bullock's department stores, and Shellhorn would come in to design a lot of the connective tissue in the Disneyland landscape design that would be replicated later in all the castle parks. And, I mean, her design work is essential to the Disneyland experience. Yeah, uh, hugely influential. And, you know, especially in those early days when there was a lot less build-out in the park, you mm-hmm. had to have that landscaping there to tie everything together, or it would have really felt sparse. Yeah, stuff like the uh, entrance and the town square, the train, uh, the hub, all that stuff is very Ruth Shellhorn influenced. Beckett had turned down the Disneyland job, but was certainly in no need of extra work. During the 50s and 60s, he would work on transforming Los Angeles through buildings such as the Capitol Records Building, the Los Angeles Airport and Theme Building, who he worked on with Pereira, uh, the Los Angeles Music Center Complex, which is incredible, and tons of hotels, including the Beverly Hilton. Beckett's reach in this time would stretch across the world in commercial and tourist development, including the Baghdad and Cairo Hiltons, the Hawaiian Village in Honolulu, and the Canyon Village in Yellowstone National Park. His firm would also build many venues, including UCLA's Pauley Pavilion, the Nassau Coliseum, and the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena. Man, that's, that's, a lot that's of quite stuff. a resume. That's right. I mean, wow. I, I think of Don Draper too, with all those Hiltons in that time. You know, they were, <laughs> yes, totally. They must have been friends. Rubbing shoulders, yeah. Beckett's major project during this time, however, was Century City to be built on what was once ranch lands for movie star Tom Mix and later the 20th Century Fox Studios and Backlot. It was a 260-acre tract that was bought by the Aluminum Company of America in a deal with Fox for $43 million in the late 1950s. The plan was to develop a city within a city, and Beckett was tabbed as the planner and architect of the development. The Foxland was cleared, including priceless backlots and studios from the golden age of film, and what was at that time the largest privately funded construction project. Uh, hmm. Sounds familiar as well. Yeah, but yeah, watching those backlots get just bulldozed is oh, that's is brutal. Brutal. Yeah. This is the era when that was happening all over, and it's just it's so tragic. Really, and they take their big, you know, tank with its huge screen and just knocked it up down, you know. But luckily, the trees survived, and they were all transplanted in what was the largest transplanting event in the history of Southern California. So that was good. They kept the trees. Uh, Beckett imagined a development that would separate people from their cars and provide a complete living experience that was pedestrian-friendly and provided park-like design with high-rise offices and living units for up to 12,000 people. In an interview with the LA Times, Beckett claimed, quote, Decentralization is passe. Suburbs, as we know them, will soon be things of the past. Hmm. Mass transit has broken down. People are spread so far that you can't get enough of them together in one place to make large conveyances pay. And freeways aren't the answer. There's no practical way to design freeways that will carry today's traffic. The best answer is the satellite community, where offices, factories, and shops will be within walking distance of the home. A network of these communities could be connected by mass transit and freeways. So, that sounds familiar. It really does, yes. That sounds nice, too. 
Beckett saw these satellite communities uh, having rings uh, of these circling the city center in the near future. We see shades of Brasilia here in the initial design and name architects such as I.M. Pei and Minoru Yamasaki being commissioned to design office buildings. Hmm. A shopping center would open in Century City with a two-story, 30-acre parking lot buried underneath, clearing visual clutter and traffic from the pedestrian level. Sound familiar? Yeah, it really does. Starting to ring a bell. <laughs> yes. I'm sure Walt uh, noticed all this with interest. Uh, as Beckett continued to rack up signature designs, such as a Cinerama Dome, he didn't seem to get the credit he may have deserved. A lot of that had to do with the fact that his architecture wasn't collectively distinctive across his many projects. Beckett was quoted as saying, A building should reflect the client, not the architect. I see no reason why I should express Welton Beckett. Others were more skeptical, including legendary architect Frank Lloyd Wright, who said, quote, I do not know Mr. Beckett, but I do know of him, and I wish something would happen to him soon. Hey, man. <laughs> that's, that's a little harsh. Chill, Frank. Ominous. He must have lost that uh, music center competition or something. Must have, have something. Finally, it was time for Walt and Beckett to collaborate officially. In the early 60s, they would work together on two pavilions for the 1964 World's Fair, the Ford Pavilion and GE's Progress Land. And these two pavilions would be two of the fair's most popular attractions, and both were very distinctive in their look. It seemed both Walt and Welton were looking to the future, and by this time appeared to be very close. They would travel with their families together, once being spotted in Fort Lauderdale en route to Puerto Rico. According to the Fort Lauderdale News, Disney and a staff of eight were off to do some research in Puerto Rico. According to Walt, quote, We're going to San Juan to prepare some sketches and soak up some color for the Pirates of the Caribbean feature we're adding to Disneyland. Uh, with Welton Beckett in tow, one wonders if there were other aims of this trip to Florida. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a time when they would have been uh, sniffing around quite a bit in a lot of different areas in Florida about some projects. So I would not be surprised if there were ulterior motives. <laughs> Come see this. Uh, we got to do some research, Welton, for this Pirates of the Caribbean thing. Yeah. <laughs> you got some time on your hands, right? Yeah. I think they also traveled to Cuba together. They were, they were buds. That, that must have been an inch. That would be an interesting trip. Yes. yes. Walton, Welton Beckett. And no wonder, you know, all this, uh, you know, these uh, these ideas got mingled into Walt's thinking if they right. were just hanging out so much. I know. Uh, like you said, by this time, they were sniffing around in Florida. They were acquiring land and through various circumstances had come up with the idea for Epcot, a city that would be developed on the virgin land in central Florida. Uh, Walt had Beckett do a pitch for the design of Epcot, but it was said to be not inviting enough and not what Walt was looking for. So he took Beckett's advice from 10 years previous and designed it with his own team. However, I would imagine he planned on having Beckett remain involved. I mean, there was a giant hotel and an arena there. You would think that he would have his imprint on Walt's Epcot. Yeah. Like even if he wasn't master planning it, I, the, I mean, it would require so much work for all the different facilities. You right. would think you'd be tapped for that. Beckett would come on to design the hotels and the phase one development that would grow out of the initial planning of Walt Disney World. Uh, we see Beckett on the ground with Marty Sklar and John Hinch. 
pacing that famous X that marked the spot where Cinderella Castle would eventually rise. So he was there on the ground. Uh, we see him on Disney's Gulfstream pouring over a map of the site plan with Joe Fowler, Card Walker, and others. So he was doing probably more than just the hotels, I would think. Um, yeah, you would think so, for sure. This seems like a project that Beckett could contribute to in ways that Disney designers had no experience working in. I mean, particularly in the hotels. Disney had no experience designing, operating, or even conceiving of them. So having him on board would have been invaluable. Yeah. I mean, as they were clearly at the time looking for outside expertise, returning to, you know, U.S. Steel and all these other things later on, uh, just because they really... Well, they didn't have the bandwidth for one thing, and then they didn't have the experience. Right. When the menu was pared down, Beckett's firm worked on the Polynesian and the flagship resort, the Contemporary. Uh, It was settled with revolutionary design and construction techniques. The Contemporary would require a lot of design savvy through its development, including the insistence from Disney Imagineers such as John Hinch that the monorail run through the lobby. Beckett would suggest a steel covering to the elevator shaft to make the lobby look more modern, but Disney's designers insisted on Mary Blair's mural to cover the space, bringing Beckett and Blair back together as collaborators, as they were when Blair's similar mural appeared in the Jill Stein Eye Institute earlier in the decade that he designed. Um, Unfortunately, like Walt Disney, Welton Beckett never lived to see Walt Disney World completed. He passed away on January 16th, 1969, at the age of 66. These guys died so young. Mm, truly. Uh, this was mere months before Phase 1 of Walt Disney World was announced, but by then, a lot of the design principles would be set in motion for what would be the first two hotels at Walt Disney World. Uh, one can only imagine what Walt and Welton could have conceived together working on Epcot as Walt knew it. But we still owe a lot of the legacy of Imagineering and its development to this neighbor of Walt's who would design so many important structures in Southern California and beyond. In the 1960s, Walt Disney and his staff at WED set their sights to tomorrow and focused on many projects that would revolutionize theme entertainment and shape a vision for the future. Artists and engineers created audio animatronics using state-of-the-art technology developed by the space program. At the World's Fair, the company partnered with large corporations to provide exhibits that not only entertained, but showed the sponsors places in the fast-approaching future. Concurrent with this, Disney designers worked on an all-new Tomorrowland for Disneyland and began to design Walt's vision for a city of the future 
to be built on land in Central Florida that the company was acquiring. Walt spent time traveling to corporate boardrooms, presenting visions of the future and seeking cooperation and new technology. And the whole Walt Disney World development would be the outgrowth of a lot of these efforts. Tomorrowland and Walt Disney World in some ways was caught up in the wake of these developments and would have a bit of a slow start just like its Disneyland counterpart did in 1955. In the original 1969 announcement of Walt Disney World, Tomorrowland looked much different than what ended up happening in 1971. Renderings of Tomorrowland are somewhat scant, but we see the Grand Prix Raceway situated upon a body of water, with the rest of the land somewhat compact involving two large buildings. There's one building spanning the front of the land and a five-sided ride building in the back that was to host Space Mountain. This version was inside the railroad track around where the Tomorrowland stage is now. The ride dates back to Walt and Imagineer John Hinch who conceived of a sequel of sorts to the Matterhorn called Space Venture or Space Port in Disneyland. According to George McGinnis, who would later work to see Space Mountain become a reality, this era's shape of the building was designed to fit into what space was left in Disneyland, to fit in the maximum amount of ride space while avoiding necessary utilities. Here in Walt Disney World, we can see on the rough rendering in 1969, the monorail passing between Space Mountain and the building that marks the front of the land, completing its circuit to the Persian Hotel. A people mover track also seems to make its way in and through Space Mountain. This has always been confusing to me, and you can see through blueprints it changes so much in these early days. Uh, the shape of Space Mountain, what's in front of it, that, you know, it's like two buildings. It looks, maybe it's like two buildings with a roof on it, but um, yeah. it's interesting to have the monorail coming through. Yeah, it's always confusing when you look at stuff this early, it's like how much was really planned and how much mm -hmm. was them just like, especially with Tomorrowland. I feel like with the other lands, the the ideas were concrete. With right. Tomorrowland, it's just like put a show building there and we'll figure out something to put inside. Right. right. You know? And this Space Mountain is like, I always think of it as like home plate because it's kind of shaped yeah. like home plate in baseball. Right. Right. And this weird five sided building and um, with all sorts of spires and. Um, you know, uh, tracks everywhere and all sorts of stuff. And you had people moving, winding everywhere. You had the monorail going through and you had the train there. And uh, yeah, a lot of intrigue about what this could have been. Right. Well, Space Mountain would prove problematic to engineers and architects who had a hard time designing the appropriate structure and using computers and the technology available at the time to design track layouts and proper safety and capacity concerns. In the meantime, Disney officers and Imagineers were courting RCA as a potential sponsor for the Walt Disney World development. The two companies had once begun a potential collaboration on a development in South Florida that was a significant step in Walt conceiving of the Disney World property to begin with. Now, after his death, Disney and RCA were collaborating again on a communication plan that would be property-wide and called WEDCOM. WEDCOM would have been way ahead of its time in its development, and a major part of the original Tomorrowland would have been its communication center for the whole property, where guests could see the heart of the operation for themselves. This would have been really wild. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, in part, uh, a lot of the kind of magic band slash even the reservation system now, you know, stuff to help them 
uh, deal with staffing and crowd control like way ahead of its time. Yeah, when you read the proposal for this thing, like the ideas that they had, it really does. It it is very much of the modern era with like Magic Band and like I I don't know what they call it, but you know, uh, like routing things to points where you know where there's where there's a crowd where there things are backing up you know you sort of focus your resources on that like oh there's a line for space mountain so we send like a marching band over there to right, entertain people right. like while they're waiting in line and the same thing that gets you into your room can you can charge your food to when you go to the food court or something like that yeah and uh you know, a lot of it's stuff that's kind of funny, like, oh, you'll have an AM, FM radio in your room, and, right. you know, you'll have 13 channels on your television, stuff like that, like closed-circuit TV for Disney World. And, you know, a lot of this stuff panned out, but it wasn't quite in this, like, overarching, like, branded system. Uh, like, a lot of it did happen, though, but some of it is really far out. Yeah. The closed-circuit TV stuff cracks me up. It's like... Jimmy turns on the security channel, you know, where they're showing the the cameras showing the property. It's like the deterrent to bad behavior is just looking at the closed circuit <laughs> the security, security cam. This is what we can see. Yeah, one of them has like mom's glad that she can turn on the camera that has a live feed of the playground so she can keep an eye on Jimmy. I'm like, oh, that yeah. wouldn't that, that wouldn't go over well today. Yeah, if only. Um Man, yeah, but imagining this big communication center that's, you know, you think at this time they're still thinking about building Epcot, mm -hmm. and uh, it would be for all of it, you know, and people could go in the Magic Kingdom and see this big communication center. Uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty neat. Like, it would be the thing that ran the entire, like, Vacation Kingdom and Epcot, and you would be able to go in and see it. Like, a lot of these early sponsorship deals that they announced, like, right at the sort of big unveiling, like, I guess it was 1969 when they sort of, un like, this is Disney World and what is going to be. And um, a lot of the technological tie-ins were tied into, and they will also have a Tomorrowland attraction. Like, Monsanto was another. Right. It's like, right. Monsanto is going to be doing something, and they will have a Tomorrowland attraction. That's right. And they did, but uh, not in the way that they uh, usually do, but... Wedcom unfortunately never panned out, but like you said, a lot of their stuff got implemented. There was, you know, the Vista United and all that that, mm -hmm. that they ended up doing, but it didn't stop Disney Imagineers from courting RCA with a new attraction planned for Disneyland's Flight of the Moon ride system in Orlando. Disney suggested a show called Alice in Computerland and later RCA's Computerama for the theater in Tomorrowland that would simulate a journey into the computer. Talk about ahead of its time. That would I mean, be something else, man. Uh, and this famously did not go over well with RCA. There was a meeting with uh, John Hinch and Marty Sklar where they just uh, totally got dissed by the RCA board. Yeah. Um, turns out RCA was going to sell their computer business, uh, all of which would result in RCA sponsorship later of Space Mountain. Uh, incidentally, their computer company, Univac, which was uh, owned by Sperry later, uh, also ended up sponsoring Epcot's Astuto Computer Review in 1982, which used a lot of the aforementioned concepts. Uh, but what about Tomorrowland? 
Yeah, it's wild that, you know, the idea of this sort of nerve center, uh, everything that runs Disney World, uh, is when you see the art from not like 1969 of what this was going to be for Wedcom and Tomorrowland, when they did a Studer computer review at Epcot Computer Central, they literally took that artwork and like did like a draw over and like replaced some of like the things yeah. that are being shown on the screens. But like the artwork is exactly the same. So they had this in their back pocket ready to go for Epcot. Pretty much. And it was perfect for Epcot. And yeah, uh, yeah, perfect. Well, in Tomorrowland, it seems like the designers were left scrambling, but a menu was finally put into action. Gone for now were the plans for Space Mountain, and an early handbook for Walt Disney World lays out what was planned. Interestingly enough, the headline attraction, according to the handbook, would be 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, and I'm curious what that's about and when it changed to Fantasyland. Yeah, I've wondered that, too. This, you know, this document is like, you know, the, the, big, the big draw of Tomorrowland, 20,000 Leagues. So I don't know when that when that happened. Uh, and that's an interesting mystery to try and unravel. It was a nomenclature change more than anything. Cause 20,000 yeah. leagues was where it was. Yeah. Uh, but on the original blueprints of the magic kingdom, the speedway and teacups were placed in an area called holiday land. So who knows? Uh, just getting it down to <laughs> yeah. figuring out what they're doing, but the skyway to fantasy land and the grand prix raceway make appearances. And it is said that the Grand Prix will be, quote, a two-sided attraction of two parallel lanes on each so that guests will be able to compete with each other. A controller in an elevated tower will dispatch the cars while a special effects system recreates the sounds of an engine roar. How <laughs> thrilling. You didn't need special effects for those engines. Yeah. I think, <laughs> right. Uh, for the front of the Tomorrowland came two attractions from the new Tomorrowland in Disneyland. Flight to the Moon in the theater where Alice in Computerland could have gone. And uh, the Circle Vision film America the Beautiful, Monsanto. There you go. Hungry denizens of Tomorrowland would have a few places to grab some food. The lunching pad serving hot dogs, cold beverages, specialty sandwiches, and ice cream. And the Tomorrowland Terrace, a giant sister establishment to the one already open in Disneyland. Here, guests would benefit from future technology in the broilamation machine. <laughs> Quote, a new conveyor system that's capable of cooking 3,000 hamburger patties in an hour. Uh, Michael, this really makes me wish for a John Henry-esque short film about the rise of the broilamation machine. Oh, that, that would be great. Oh, we need to get Eric Goldberg on that. That would be amazing. <laughs> Battle of Broilimation. <laughs> Just this, their excitement over the Broilimation machine kills me. Their whole thing about industrial cooking is always funny to me. Uh, but this is like the tops, you know, like just giant conveyor belt. I want to see the Broilimation machine. <laughs> it's like, like it should always with yeah. burgers on them. <laughs> right. Also, like its Disneyland counterpart, the terrace would feature live entertainment and a hydraulic stage that would have the bands rise into the room to entertain guests. Young groups of musicians will play and sing the up-tempo tunes of the day. Uh, the Tomorrowland Bandstand was always something that amazed me as a kid uh, from that Pirates of the Caribbean to the World of Tomorrow special. Mm -hmm. And for the longest time, I didn't really realize that Walt Disney World had one of its very own. Yeah, same here. I I don't even know how old I was when I realized that it 
it did the same trick. I, Just because they it. didn't highlight it. Yeah, I mean that one in Disneyland is really sweet because of the design and the it has the little planner on top, so it's just yeah. like a little extra. But they couldn't do that in Florida with what with the rain and all. It yeah. has to go inside. Uh, also promised in this document was in 1972, uh, the Widway People Mover to be built on a climate controlled pathway. So that hmm. was coming soon. They thought, well, guests who came to Walt Disney World for its opening, hoping to, to don their astronaut suits and travel to the world of tomorrow would have probably been left wanting. The two large buildings flanking the entrance pathway would be closed for the first month or two of the Magic Kingdom with their giant futuristic fountain pylons and people mover pathways already constructed, just dead ending into the end of the building, which I always <laughs> think is funny. They're just kind yeah. of like people mover holes. Uh, these entrance pylons were so great, and I really mourn their loss. Yeah. I mean, t- they were just so imposing and really gave that city of the future feel really nicely. Yeah. I feel like they're like the real, you know, design element that popped uh, at that point. And of course, they would build on to Tomorrowland as they go with great things. But yeah, without it, it's like just not, yeah. It's not, not the same. Yeah, very nice. The contemporary resort would set as a fitting background into the land in its initial phase and loom over the limited offerings. And this was really the one successful attempt to have the hotel mirror a land of the Magic Kingdom. As with its location, it just looked like a legitimate extension of Tomorrowland. That was just really great design, how they did that. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's in, it's almost like a faux weenie. Because it's not right. even part of the land, but it it's like really great backdrop to the land, and uh, really gives a very deliberate like extension of the space. Like, uh, yeah, like this is Tomorrowland. This is like it, and you can still kind of see that at, like across the hub, like looking from the Liberty Square Bridge, it still kind of shows up. But in these early pictures, you know, without the Rocket Tower Plaza or the Astro Jets or whatever, you know, it it was striking yeah it really was and especially with i mean even the landscaping not being overgrown or anything right it right. really looms over things guests could board the beloved skyway to fantasy land and soar above the grand prix raceway which was also open on opening day there they would enter the somewhat thrilling transfer station which <laughs> would turn their skyway gondolas for a flight over fantasy land man i have some uh real fun memories of working the transfer station out there and <laughs> With my little water cooler and a fan. Sometimes every once in a while, the rare person would get stuck out there. You would have to just push them through. Oh, man. That's rough. I, it. I just I sat there thinking, most of the time I was out there, because I worked there in the summer, I was like, why couldn't they have built the Matterhorn here? I would be like <laughs> standing in the Matterhorn. This would be great. That would be so much better. Instead, yeah, I bet. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. Uh, the space bar and lunching pad would serve up snacks and quick meals, but by far and away, the biggest thing in Tomorrowland was the Tomorrowland Terrace, which stretched via hexagonal architecture over the length of half the land. And the entertainment was hot stuff, Michael. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, yeah. The music of today. <laughs> in the early years, frequent guests on the Terrace stage were several groups, including Dallas Soundtrack. 
which I believe is the band that appears on the Magic of Walt Disney World uh, movie, where you uh, actually see the stage in action. Yeah. But there was also Tomorrow's Sunshine and Cricket as well. I want to hear some Cricket. It's such an evocative name, and yet I don't really know what it would have been like. <laughs> so I probably know what it would have been like. It would have been like, you know, joy to the world. <laughs> or, True. Exactly. Whatever. Uh, another band that shared time between the Fantasy Fair stage and the Terrace was Nick Russo's Gabriel's Brass, who had a 10-year contract at Walt Disney World. Whoa. I know. Uh, Russo was a trumpeter of great renown. We talk with Pat Terry about all these people who came. I mean, you know, his father was one of them. These people who had worked with everybody. Uh, Russo had made his way through the Las Vegas hotel circuit, playing with Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, and Sammy Davis Jr. While he was playing in Miami for the Jackie Gleason show, none other than Ethel Merman gave him the nickname Gabriel, and they would appear together playing the song Blow Gabriel Blow. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> wow. Russo would go on to start his own record label named Gentry Records, releasing a few of his own records. He had a real Herb Albert feel. It's just beautiful brass music. Michael, this is proof that I was born into the wrong time. Oh, if I would have walked into the Tomorrowland Terrace and somebody was playing like that, I would maybe never leave. I would just be broilimating all day. <laughs> that is smooth. Just Can you so imagine classy? like it's evening at the Magic Kingdom, the sun's gone down. You're there along that sort of promenade uh, between the Terrace and the Grand Prix cars. You hear this coming out of the doors. How are you not uh, going in there? I mean, uh, it's just so glorious. So good. The sounds of uh, Gabriel's brass and the smell of the broiler mater. I mean, uh, they just... were like really going for it on their entertainment offerings in the first 10 years here. I mean, and it continued on. You know, they got a bunch of people for Epcot, but these groups were just no joke. Yeah. And I mean, like this is a burger joint. And they've right. got these guys in there. Right. Right. Oh, so amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, dear, during the 70s, Walt Disney World would also take on the Disneyland model of having name acts play the park and the top of the world at the contemporary. A few notable acts in those early days were Friends of Distinction grazing the grass and, and oh. the grassroots. Oh, man. I know. Playing the Tomorrowland Terrace. That's wild. Even Bo Cephas himself would take up residence in the Tomorrowland Terrace. None other than Hank Williams Jr. would appear there as part of Walt Disney World's Country Music Jamboree in 1973, another event that oh, I hate I missed. Can you imagine? Well, I can take you there uh, via an article in the Sentinel dated September 23rd of that year, which profiled Williams and his stint in Tomorrowland in great detail. I will share a little bit of this. Quote, Hamburgers and hot dogs, soft drinks and French fries. The audience at Disney World is eating them up. The lines at the Tomorrowland snack counters are six deep. They're just plain folks. These country and Western music fans who've come to see Hank Williams Jr., son of the man, the late Hank Sr. Williams's band, all gussied up in blue suits with white hearts and musical notes on them, is a good old country boy collection if ever there was one. Except for one. The guitar player in the back row is taller, better looking, more bored than the rest. 
When he isn't turning around to check out the passers-by, he's yawning. Fact is, the boys had arrived by plane from New Orleans at noon. They had to be in the Disney parade at 2. Their first show of 3 was at 3 p.m. After the last show ends around 7 p.m., Hank Jr. can spare a few minutes with the press before sack time. The guys are using a dressing room with Tomorrowland Terrace Women Entertainment Only on the door. Stripped off shirts reveal some good, doubtfully healthy, living. There are several chubby bellies. (laughs) It doesn't take Williams long to change. He moves next door to the quieter men entertainment only room and allows us how the lemon lime drink looks good. Someone gets a cup for him. He's not in the least good looking. The hat he'd worn on stage covers a premature baldness. He's quite nice, but he is tired. He's toting a small suitcase and a clothes bag with his costume. Man, a little salt from the reporter here. This is like... Uh, this is like overcompensation for the articles that they did about the um, ambassador ladies. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. oh, they criticized us talking about how hot the ladies are. <laughs> we'll, we'll write about how hideous Hank Williams Jr. is. <laughs> what in the world? This band, they're, they're fat. Can you believe it? <laughs> Doubtfully healthy. I love that uh, Bocephus is trying out the the lemon lime drink at the Tomorrowland Terrace. <laughs> no, he likes uh, uh, he likes a little refreshing uh, citrus <laughs> beverage. That's good. Are you ready for some broiler mation? <laughs> <laughs> you know he had a broiler made a burger. There's oh, no way he probably didn't. several if this uh, account is accurate. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, no Man. wonder they're chubby. What with the broiler making broiler mater next door. <laughs> That is uh, wild. Man, there were some real great lineups during this time in the park. Check a few of these out. Grad Night, 1972. You got Paul Revere and the Raiders. The Stampeders of Sweet City Woman fame. Oh. The Staple Singers and Saltwater Express. Oh, I mean, man. Come on. In 1973, you got Rick Nelson and the Stone Canyon Band. The New Seekers, the Spinners, oh. and Group Cassidy. The new seekers, though. Rick Nelson. I know. Rick Nelson at the castle? Come on. That's wild. (sighs) But by far, the most iconic performer in the Tomorrowland Terrace was yet to come. In time for the bicentennial in July of 1976 came the one and only Michael Iceberg and his amazing iceberg machine. The machine was composed of a growing array of synthesizers centered around a Chamberlain keyboard that was controlled in part by bicycle gears. Iceberg would go on to play the terrace for years, playing six shows a day, six days a week, which I cannot even imagine. Really? Eventually, the machine would grow to be set within a pyramid whose top would open up, revealing a huge mirror so audiences could see the iceberg machine in action. Now, this was so cool. To, with with the rising stage, it's just like a pyramid, and then the pyramid comes off, and he's in there with his iceberg machine. Yeah. It's like an ELO uh, album cover come to life. Truly. I mean, and he was a wild man. He had a, <laughs> His performances were wild. Uh, he would go on to record an album of a live concert there at the Terrace, uh, his show involved lots of Disney music and covers, as well as some of his original music and a lot of humor. Um, 
He was a fixture of the terrorist until his contract ran out in 1982. After his contract expired, he would broadcast a Disney Channel concert special from Disneyland in 1983 and appear on the Johnny Carson Show and in the TV special Computers Are People 2, which we will have to discuss in length at some point, Michael. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. (laughs) I imagine there's a lot to say. A lot to say. Uh, He would also contribute to some music for a preview of an Epcot. Here's a little clip of that. Is such a cool piece of music. I love that. Yeah, it's so good. Very evocative of its Very, yeah. era. Of the times. Uh, with Iceberg for a while, Disney had someone who actually played the music of tomorrow in Tomorrowland, a novel concept, not the music of today. Uh, Michael, I really wish we could have seen him in the terrace. I know. We were just barely, barely too late to That's see right. this. And I can imagine this would have knocked our socks off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just seeing, especially at the height of, uh, by the end, his machine was so extensive, just, I'm sure it would have blown us away. I mean, yeah. I mean, especially with what was going on with synthesizers, this just seems like a no-brainer. And it, you know, it was just such a happenstance thing where somebody at the studio saw him and just referred him over to the people at WED, you know, or the people at Disney, and they just got him. But it's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, I really wish we could have seen it. As for Tomorrowland, it would eventually catch up with the rest of the park with the addition of If You Had Wings in 1972 and then in 1975 with the full land build out, including, of course, Space Mountain. I know you've heard of it.
As we enter the year during which Epcot will become, believe it or not, 40 years old, it's only right that we began a series of explorations into that park and its creation. Jeff, 40 years, how is that even possible? I only believe it's possible in that I am so close to the age of Epcot and I know that it indeed is possible, but yes. <laughs> Which also seems seem like, impossible. Yes, doesn't seem like it should be possible. No, I mean, I think of when Disneyland turned 40, I mean, that was in the 90s. That was oh, like yeah. late. That, that was a long time. 40 years right. was a long time. Yes, it was. That was old. Oh, we've talked in the past about how the road to Epcot was a rocky one, as Disney management and Imagineers attempted to find a way to realize Walt's ambitions for a futuristic prototype community in a way that was achievable without his guiding vision. As one Disney spokesman brutally put it in July 1975, that concept that was originally envisioned is no longer relevant. <laughs> That's one of my, I trot that quote out whenever I can, because it's, <laughs> it's a, good it's a favorite. It's a good one. Yeah. Brutal. Uh, or as Disney CEO, Card Walker said, we must avoid building a huge traditional brick and mortar community, which might possibly become obsolete in Epcot terms as soon as it is completed. It was in this era when Disney slowly began to promote the narrative that Walt Disney World itself, with its innovative use of technology and prototype systems, was the actual realization of Epcot. Epcot was never meant to be an actual residential development, the story would go, as the years passed, but instead it was the set of values upon which the Florida property was modeled. This, of course, led to the uh, Danny Kaye monologue about right. Disney World being Epcot and Epcot Center being the center of Epcot and Disney World and la la la. 1975, however, Walt's Epcot film was too recent in the public consciousness for that line to work, and the Florida legislature certainly hadn't forgotten the massive concessions it had given to Disney in order to make Epcot happen. Therefore, the company had to be fairly candid in its admissions that they were changing Epcot into a form with which they were more comfortable, that of themed entertainment. But what would that mean? That year's annual report to shareholders, Walker claimed that, quote, a dynamic and achievable approach to Epcot is rapidly coming into focus. Gone was the idea of an actual city of tomorrow. As Walker said, we believe we must develop a community system oriented to the communication of new ideas rather than to serving the day-to-day -day needs of a limited number of permanent residents. In the place of Epcot, the city would be something else entirely. Epcot's purpose, said Disney, will be to respond to the needs of people by providing a Disney-designed and Disney-managed forum where creative men and women of science, industry, universities, government, and the arts from around the world can develop, demonstrate, and communicate prototype concepts and new technologies which can help mankind to achieve better ways of living. Disney still planned on incorporating many of Epcot's ideas into its Florida property, but instead of permanent residents, it would house and service a transient population of tourists and corporate personnel. The elements in and around Walt Disney World derived from the Epcot philosophy would then be made accessible to the public through a series of themed attractions that would inform guests about the various Epcot initiatives and allow them to experience the innovations firsthand. 
In some ways, this was an evolution of Walt's concept for Epcot's industrial park area, where corporations would have cutting-edge factories and technology installations which the public could tour. And a precursor to the workplace. <laughs> a precursor to workplace, that uh, ice cream and CDs. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, an, an eternal dream, a never-ending dream. Uh, by the dawn of 1975, Disney had already announced a few elements of the emerging Epcot vision, including a series of Epcot satellites, which would be research sites or technology demonstrations throughout Walt Disney World and even potentially across the United States. These could be anything from Disney's own innovative waste management or energy facilities to something like a cutting-edge healthcare complex or a public policy think tank. They would also include the World Showcase, an international exposition which was to be the first Epcot satellite to be built. But more was on the way. The year 1975 had been heralded as the point which would, quote, mark the first period of concentrated planning and design for the centers of activity within Epcot itself. As Disney claimed, wide-ranging discussions will be held with representatives of world governments, leading businessmen, engineers, scientists, and artists, for only through their cooperation will the company be able to bring this immense concept to life. The reason given for this sudden Epcot push was that 1975, said Walker, would officially mark the end of phase one of Walt Disney World's development. Enough attractions would open at the Magic Kingdom that year for it to reach a theoretical capacity of 70,000, which would match that of Disneyland. Previously, Disney had said that it would proceed with Epcot when Walt Disney World achieved an annual attendance of 10 million guests, which they estimated would take five years after its 1971 opening. But the resort actually blew by that mark in its first year, so they had to rethink things slightly. Yeah, all this feels very arbitrary of like, yeah, we'll do it when uh, we reach the capacity of disneyland yeah 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 it's so and it <laughs> keeps slipping throughout the decade and they'll be like hey i guess we're we're two years ahead of schedule uh, <laughs> and as you know we'll do it when we're this popular and then they would be you know instantly that popular like oh how about this this was the plan all along folks as 1975 proceeded, Disney was working with General Electric, RCA, the National Science Foundation, and the Jet Propulsion Labs to develop concepts for Epcot, and on July 14th, Card Walker and Don Tatum had a major media event to show off their latest twist on the Epcot idea. This multi-pronged approach included the aforementioned satellite sites, including the World Showcase, as well as an international village, which would be located near Lake Buena Vista and would basically be sort of an Olympic village for all the young people brought into work at World Showcase. This was no uh, Vista Way. This, right. was, this was snazzy. Very mod. The plan also included the Epcot Institute, which would be an independent organization formed to oversee the activity in all these satellite research facilities and facilitate the translation of all their research output into the public sphere where any discoveries or innovations could benefit the public. Already getting into the institutes back then, huh? I know. This was the, the first of many institutes. I, I would only hope that they would have an open house day, right. as all good institutes do. Uh, one day only, open house. Right. Uh, the most prominent new element announced that July was the Future World Theme Center, 
a gated attraction which was meant to serve as a single site where all the ideas and fields of studies being explored in the Epcot satellites would be made accessible to guests. Located roughly where Epcot Center sits today, the theme center was conceptually a sort of bridge between Walt's idea for an industrial park and the future world attractions we came to know when Epcot Center opened. Uh, this marked the first appearance of pavilions themed to different fields of study. These various pavilions were meant to tie into the Epcot satellite sites operating elsewhere. Uh, think of these pavilions as a one-stop shop for Epcot knowledge. In an energy pavilion, for instance, you could get updates on what was happening elsewhere in Walt Disney World's solar facility, or a plant which burned garbage to create energy, or other similarly themed sites. So all these topical sites would tie into the pavilion with that umbrella thing. I have to say, I really love this idea. I think we've discussed this before, but I, I think this might be the one I choose, you know, of all the iterations. Cause it's very, uh, I don't know. I feel like it could have really, uh, I don't know, changed the conversation of people who come to all the people who visit, you know, it would have been pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. Uh, and if they did all these sites and everything, I mean, this would have been real world. This was essentially what Walt was talking about, minus the permanent residents of, right. you know, showing off all these systems and uh, really demonstrating how they could be made effective and just kind of selling it to the public. So I agree. I think it's a good idea. And in those days, they had so many of these little programs running that uh, if they kept expanding that, who knows what they yeah, could have pulled off. And it would have inherently encouraged more of them, um, which would yes. be nice. Yeah. Yeah. The theme center was announced as the heart of Epcot, and in many ways that was true. It's three major pavilions, which uh, a lot of memos and uh, talking about it, the Imagineers called them lands, just sort of internally. Uh, they were sort of three themed lands, although they called them theme pavilions. Uh, these would have been based on science and technology, community, and communications and the arts. And each of these theme pavilions would feature displays, shows, and information centers on various fields and disciplines. Uh, they would, quote, keep abreast of scientific and industrial research around the world and make that information available to visitors. This is like Epcot outreach on a massive scale. Right, right. According to the spring 1976 Disney News, inside the Future World Theme Center, quote, 360-degree movie screens and various displays will offer guests an overview of current Epcot projects. Guests can then visit the area, called Satellites, of particular interest to them. So this is like, like the browser. Uh, right. You know, the intro. I imagine this place having like a giant commissary. Like that's the place you would eat. It's just yeah. like a cafeteria, you know? Yeah. Like Air and Space Museum. Hopefully <laughs> right, with like one right. of the big carousel uh, yeah. with food on it. Yeah. Of course. So good. Uh, the plan in 1975 was for there to be no fee for guests to enter the future World Theme Center. Disney would charge for admission to the World Showcase and other satellite sites. Uh, said Disney, quote, We envision the Epcot Future World Theme Center as a long-range non-profit project whose pavilions and exhibits will be financed by interested governmental agencies, corporations, 
and foundations. We will contribute whatever land is necessary and make the theme center available to Walt Disney World guests free of charge. We believe that the theme center will directly benefit our company by focusing worldwide attention on and attracting new audiences, including major convention groups, to Walt Disney World. That sounds a little different. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. Uh, this was a goal that Disney openly discussed at the time. Their spokesman would mention how the theme center project was partially intended as a way of getting people to spend two days at the resort instead of just coming to the Magic Kingdom for one. And, you know, that remained a goal through Epcot Center's opening. I was kind of one of their prime drivers in doing all this. Uh, but it really was successful when it actually happened. It really did drive attendance. And, uh, you know, as they said, uh, attracting new audiences. Epcot did attract new audiences. It attracted uh, adults, uh, you know, seniors and adult audiences were a big target of Epcot early on, uh, before everything was just family all the time. And uh, it really did diversify Disney's uh, Disney World's audience quite a bit. That's right. The, the after four crowd, the after four pass, the, the fine diners, you know, you name mm -hmm. it. Culture. A beautiful Parisian cafe. The urban sophisticates. Yeah, that's true. All of those in the Orlando area coming to Epcot. Uh, resort guests would be able to reach the theme center and world showcase via an expansion of the monorail system. And other future satellite sites would be tied into the resort transportation system as well. But what would guests arriving at this theme center experience? According to Disney, they would find, quote, motion pictures, models, multimedia exhibits, and ride-through experiences. Uh, these would inform millions of people each year about what is being done in the creative centers of science and industry around the world. They added, most importantly, it will demonstrate how these new technologies and ideas can be applied in a practical way to improving the environment for living in existing communities throughout America and the world. So there's a little of that Walt Epcot DNA. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Spreading it around, spreading the knowledge around. A theme center guests would arrive first at a transportation hub, which would connect to the rest of Walt Disney World via motor <sighs> motor coach, monorails, and people movers. <sighs> some some documents also mention uh, water taxis, so there could have been that as well. Uh, so everybody's coming to Epcot to the tennis community. Yeah, exactly. My motor coach arrived from the sailing community. <laughs> uh, upon entering the park, guests would pass into Communicore, the communications corridor. Hmm. Uh, this was a multi-story building, which would travel from the park's entrance all the way into the core of the theme center. If you mentally map it over the current Epcot layout, think of it as a super funky 70s mall stretching from where you enter the turnstiles to where the old central fountain used to be. So this went right to the core of the apple. I think it's so bizarre that they changed, they kept the name, but changed the meaning of the name. Yeah, That's exactly. Bizarre. Yeah. Like, we just love this idea. We love this name so much. We got to keep it, but it doesn't fit anymore. In a lot of ways, this was the main street of Epcot Future World Theme Center. 
when you sort of see what they're planning to put in there. And I mean, when, when you look at the layout of it, it's sort of a futuristic mainstream. So oh, that's interesting. As you made your way through Communicore, you'd pass an information store, which would be, I guess, the Emporium equivalent, as well as two Epcot overview theaters. These twin circle vision theaters would teach guests about Walt's goals for Epcot as well as how the community functioned, how, you know, how the whole system worked with the satellites and everything. It would also inform them about what was happening in Epcot on the day of their visit. So you'd get a briefing about what was happening in all the satellites that particular day. Hmm. Uh, talk about upkeep costs, man. This is yeah. like daily updates. Just that video technology and satellite uplink, you know, who knows? <laughs> the world's your oyster. That's true. That's true. Renderings of Communicore depict a seriously wild mall of the future with all kinds of crazy displays and exhibits. Uh, it would feature the Information Gallery, which Disney described thusly, a sort of information main street where leading world communications companies would join in a major exposition to demonstrate their latest information systems and products, and where guests could subscribe to the Epcot Information Network a wide variety of information media, which will make available for school, professional, and home use the creative output of the Epcot satellite activities. Hey, Epcot Discovery Center. Exactly. I mean, the roots were there. That's right. Uh, you know, we see ideas here that would be found in, you know, slightly pared down forms in a lot of actual Epcot Communicore exhibits, like FutureCom, the Electronic Forum, Epcot Poll. Uh, this Epcot Information Network is a real predecessor of Epcot Educational Media, which was a very active educational staple in the 1980s. Right, right. Of course, this would have been more direct, taking the things. I mean, this is like translational science. This is like a thing that happens today. It's like taking stuff in academia, trying to put it into the like the private public sphere. Uh, it's it's a big thing, and um, they were right on it. Other potential information gallery offerings included a travel center, a career center, a video bookstore. Oh, yeah. Whatever that is. Uh, a health center and an information arcade. R.I.P. Mm. Tron Arcade. Yeah. At the other end of Communicore, guests would eventually reach the information plaza, which was to house the computer center and world city model. Even at this point, Disney was repurposing artwork for the old Tomorrowland RCA computer display to represent this computer center. Uh, while we did, in the end, get Epcot Computer Central in a different location in the park, this World City model would have been wild. Located at the very center of the Epcot layout, it would be a, quote, amphitheater depicting a future community in the process of growth and adaptation. It would, said Disney, Combine advanced entertainment techniques, miniaturization, video projection, animation, and computer-driven simulations and displays to trace the evolution of the major cities of the world and to portray a model community of the future in the process of growth and adaptation. Now, that, this sounds really cool. Yeah. I don't even know what that would mean. <laughs> I know. But it, it sounds all the exciting. words sound good. Are, yeah. They're all good words. Uh, what gets me about this, it sounds really like a World's Fair exhibit, like from the 1939 yeah. or 1964 fair. Also, like the post show to Disneyland's Carousel of Progress with the Progress City model. Yeah. But just like real extra. 
Like you're super extra. I was picturing those uh, from the Futurama, the World's Fair. They had those, uh, you know, machines going through the rainforest and like paving the highways. And they're yes. kind of like yes. caterpillars. I imagine them like building this giant city. <laughs> yeah, all in like model form. And right. Oh man, it would it would this would have been like right up my alley. This would have been really cool. Just giants like everybody's standing in a circle and like the artwork for there's artwork for the world city model in uh i believe it's the 1975 annual report uh, john decure jr son of the legendary art director is painting this rendering of it and it, it would have been huge i mean you see wow. the people surrounding this thing and it's massive just massive it center center exactly uh, around Communicore were meant to stand three major theme center pavilions. Uh, for these, said Disney, American corporations, industry associations, or consortiums, foundations, and the government will be invited to sponsor major Disney-designed and operated showcase attractions. Only American corporations, though, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, if a guest stood at the center of the theme center facing into the park, they would find to their left the community theme pavilion. Attractions here would focus on education, health and medicine, economics, planning and design, and government services. Um, you got to wonder what those attractions would be like. Yeah, what? I love the uh, the government services ride, or the uh, they could for economics they could have the piggy bank adventure. That's true. From in, from interventions, Just picture a bunch of slideshows in this, you know, like <laughs> yeah newsreels from the government it is perhaps very telling that you never see concept art for any of these things yeah at all think so. yeah. uh dead ahead if you were standing in the center of epcot would be the science and technology theme pavilion focusing on let's see energy transportation agriculture and food production oceanography and outer space hmm uh, you, you might notice that these are almost exactly the pavilion themes found in Future World when it opened in 1982. And as artwork from 1975 indicates, these were probably the exhibits that were most developed even at that point. These are the things you see in, uh, in, in the annual reports and in, uh, in the magazines and stuff. Uh, it's clear where their interests lay. In an early list of assignments for these pavilions, it's clear that Claude Coates had an outsized role in the development of many of these shows. As of April 1975, he was assigned to energy and agriculture. Gordon Cooper, the former Mercury astronaut who Imagineering <laughs> had brought on as an executive to help reach out to potential corporate sponsors, was assigned to energy and space, of course. Exitensia was assigned to communications, while the legendary Bill Evans and landscape architect Herb Ramsair were also on the agricultural team. Our old pal George McGinnis was on space, along with Rick Harper and Bill Bashay who, as we had mentioned, uh, worked on the old Tomorrowland programs. So there's a connection there. Uh, Roger Brogy, Bob Gurr, and Dave Gangenbach were on transportation at that time, and none other than Tony Baxter was on oceanography. So it's easy to see how these projects evolved into the pavilions we knew later. I already got a bunch of giants on the project. Exactly, yeah. I, although, I, you know... <laughs> Very few of these would be the ones that sort of were there at the end. So it's right, interesting. Right. It would be interesting to track how it changed over time. Uh, 
You just got to get Gordo off Space Mountain because it's so much like the real thing, you know. <laughs> it's so much like the real thing, just like training. Uh, Art for the Energy Exhibit shows a massive laser display. Uh, this is one you'll see online floating around a lot. Uh, another piece shows ride vehicles on a track riding around a very mod-looking, seemingly solar-powered kinetic sculpture. Very, um, very funky and of its era. Concepts for the land included terraced gardens, which people would pass through on a speed ramp. And a, a lot of the ideas, which actually would make it into the land pavilion later, were present right there at the start. Artwork for a space attraction shows Omnimover vehicles parading off into a massive space station, which looks really cool. And a really wild rendering shows several dozen small circular pods containing guests who are looking out onto a massive projection of spaceships swooping past Saturn. So, you know, what could have been? Yeah, it's amazing to me they didn't build space, like, right at the beginning. I know it was yeah. part of the initial design, but, you know, from the very beginning, it was kind of tied into the DNA, and it never quite, yeah. Right, <laughs> I mean, it was so perfect for the park, and, I mean, it's, just, you know, in the end it comes down to sponsorship, but of all the things to leave out, right? got to have that space, man. Handwritten notes by George McGinnis for the Space Pavilion show a template that would become very familiar for Epcot guests and, as we have mentioned before, had been a part of early Disney educational efforts as well. His outline begins with, of course, a dive into history. From early Chinese explorations of rocketry to the efforts of Goddard and Von Braun, this would segue into depictions of modern and future space travel and would include explorations of how space uh, exploration could help us understand Earth itself. So very, you know, thinking along the Epcot lines from the very start. That's right. The third theme pavilion, which would be to the right, kind of where the land is today, if you were imagining this, was supposed to be communications and the arts, which would tackle information and communications, as well as the performing, visual, and design arts. Uh, these, of course, would eventually morph into the Spaceship Earth and Imagination shows, just after a lot of deliberation. Judging from concept art, these pavilions would be named along a similar scheme, a la the future world of energy, or the future world of communication, things like that. In fact, after Epcot opened, the educational media branch did put out three books entitled The Future World of Energy, The Future World of Agriculture, and the future world of transportation. So that nomenclature lived on after. That makes sense, because I always wondered why they only did those. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, some proposed park layouts include a visual icon called the Communications Tower, which would be the park's weenie of choice. Other layouts include a conference center to host all those people coming to study at the Epcot satellites, and a lot of them have like a big auditorium as part of it to have, you yeah. know. This is seminars. all furthering my cafeteria commissary theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It fits in really well. The world's largest cafeteria with the <laughs> broilimation. Oh, man. The broilimation contract alone would have been massive. Yeah, exactly. you know, they would have found a new broilimation machine for that. Broilimation, broilimation 2000. Right. <laughs> it's important to note that things were in constant flux at this point with tons of ideas getting thrown at the wall daily. Uh, memos tell of everything from a casino of information to a future world of information that would include an office of the future, school of the future, and drugstore of the future. Mm. Whatever that means. But this all 
wasn't just talk. Behind the scenes, they were really working to get things going. Uh, 1976 saw them reach out to Ralston Purina, of all people, for an aquaculture project for the Agricultural Center. Uh, this would have been, you know, a satellite site that would fit in with that pavilion. Uh, the same year saw the University of Arizona's Environmental Research Laboratory brought in to help develop a plan for a controlled environmental agricultural facility to help produce food for use in Walt Disney World. Uh, you know, which panned out eventually. That's right. Uh, these are just a couple of examples. Disney really was reaching out to people. And I think a reason a lot of this didn't happen is governments and foundations and corporations and things just, I mean, first this was in the 70s, so everything was terrible. And nobody had any money to do anything. And, uh, you know, Disney did try and just didn't get the response that they had hoped for. Eventually, the time-honored factors of money and time came into play. Disney's plans were scaled down. The idea was floated to focus on starting only with the science and technology land at first and selecting a few key subject area pavilions for the park's opening. Other elements were downsized or morphed into other things. The World City Show seems to have evolved first into like an Omnimover ride into the future, and I think that's slowly became the show we know as Spaceship Earth. And uh, it's almost like a chart, uh, like a, like a visual evolution of like you see like the uh, you know Homo sapien evolving into like a human being. Uh, when you look at renderings of Epcot throughout this time, it's just like uh, Spaceship Earth slowly growing from like, right. one, you know, just a little a little thing there in the middle, and then suddenly it's. Uh, more complex and more complex and then suddenly it's a sphere so it's just a weird evolution um, and uh, you know of course at some point in 1976 the models were famously pushed together and the future world theme center and world showcase became a single gated park Epcot Center what's interesting to me is that most of the stuff that got worked on back in 1975 seems to have been the science related stuff like I said uh, even when they switched to the Epcot Center model, pretty much all of the humanity stuff got ditched. Uh, Imagination itself, it was a late add to the lineup, and th then only because they were looking for something Kodak could sponsor. Yeah. I mean, I can't, yeah. I mean, again, Spaceship Earth has some arts and humanities in it, but yeah. And that was only because uh, they, they kind of tweaked the show because AT&T, they originally wanted IBM to sponsor it. And uh, when they got AT&T or a Bell system at the time, uh, they, uh, they had to kind of tweak it, tweak its message. Hmm. Uh, one wonders what format, you know, all of that stuff would have taken if they'd followed through with it and how quickly a lot of it would have become outdated. You know, you think about these Office of the Future type exhibits, that, that would face the same challenge they worried about for Walt's brick and mortar city. For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, making rides that focus mostly on the past with a sort of vague, nebulous view of the future at the end wound up being a lot more of a timeless approach, I think. And yet, they all fell. Yeah, so sadly so. Yeah. Uh, needless to say, there was a lot more coming for the Epcot saga, and uh, we'll be revisiting it all in the episodes ahead.
So that wraps up our trip to Tomorrowland and the, its realms. Uh, Michael, uh, I'm excited about all this Epcot coming up. We've got we've got a lot of Epcot to talk about. We have held back on Epcot for so long. I'm excited to dig into your well of Epcot knowledge. Yeah, this is like uh, holding off till you see the whites of their eyes, keeping your powder dry. <laughs> uh, we've been holding off and holding off and holding off, and now it's Epcot time, man. So there's. Right. So much to talk about, and you know, Epcot being designed as it was with these themed areas, you know, like agriculture and transportation and communication, and then the international areas as well. Those go beyond the borders of Epcot, much like the Future World Theme Center was supposed yes. to be. Yes. And there are topics throughout Disney history that tie into each of these. So, it, you know, you can talk about the land, but then there's also a lot of Disney uh, agricultural stories to tell. So, you know, each one ties in. It's it's a whole web of things. And not only Disney history, my friend, we may be connecting to the uh, larger world this year with some of these themes. There's, there's a right. lot of people involved uh, in making Epcot happen that have some really interesting uh, perspectives and histories of their own. So we'll probably look into that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of interesting folks. So it's the time of the podcast where we check in with our Patreon and see if we have any new signees. Michael, do we have any new patrons this month? We do. Since our last episode, we'd like to welcome Nathan, Zach, and Shane all to the Patreon. Welcome, guys. Uh, you, uh, we appreciate you. We're uh, we're glad you signed up. They'll, of course, uh, be getting early access to episodes, including this one, getting a nice little packet of swag in the mail, Progress City swag. And, of course, the folks at the Silver level will be getting access to our monthly live stream, which ties into whatever our theme is that month. Lots of rare photo and video and just hanging out with some really fun people every month. I... I enjoy that. It's getting, we have a gang now. Oh, and yeah. It's really yeah. great to check in with the crew every month. It's fun. It's, yeah, we, we do appreciate everyone supporting us and what we do. We also just appreciate, yeah, the gang hanging out and chatting. It's, it's always a lot of fun. And, you know, like I've said earlier, we're about to open up a treasure trove, I imagine, of, of materiel this year, Michael. Oh, yeah. On the live stream. So it's a good time if you haven't signed up. Uh, this might be a good time to think about it if uh, you want to see some good Epcot stuff. I know somebody who's got some good Epcot stuff just sitting there. I was about to say, I have, I have more of all my junk. I have more Epcot junk <laughs> than any other junk. So, yeah, the live stream is going to be hot this year for sure. Well, we want to thank you all for joining up. And uh, if you'd like to join up, listener, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash USA. You can also contact us with any questions, concerns, comments you have at podcast at progresscityusa.com. On Twitter, we are at Progress City USA. That's Michael. And I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. And uh, Michael, what's coming up next for us? Next, we're going to be talking to one of these very fascinating people that made Epcot happen. Not only Epcot, but a lot of other things Tomorrowland related and discovery land related that's mr tim delaney former imagineer oh you know once and always an imagineer 
and uh, responsible for a lot of things you'll be really interested in hearing about. Yeah, he's going to have some great stories. What an amazing array of projects he was involved in uh, through the years. So a man of tomorrow, Michael. Absolutely. Uh, definitely a man whose heart is really in Tomorrowland. So I'm really excited to hear his thoughts on a lot of this stuff. As am I. All right, folks, well, we're going to wrap it up for this month, and we look forward to joining you soon. And actually, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with Tim Delaney. Until then, from all of us to all of you, take care, and we will see you tomorrow. It's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. They call it Progress, Progress. Our time is at an end. We'll be seeing you again next time at Progress. listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.